Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. Let's dive in. One of the recommendations that we give quite often to people is that you know, your portfolio is very inflation-driven. You know, so ch- big changes in inflation you know, because of these different things that you hold in your portfolio actually are really problematic if there's big changes in expected inflation. And so you know, over the last year, that's obviously very topical. Uh, where we're also looking at sort of underlying drivers around currency prices, or you know, we have a lot of Canadian investors and the Canadian economy is very commodity heavy. You know, a lot of oil and mining exposure in Canada. And so a lot of the stock market in general, if you take sort of broad Canadian indexes, you're very driven by commodities. And so you wanna be able to hedge against that. You wanna be able to diversify you know, in these underlying drivers, not just in these surface level you know, pie charts and uh, cuts about how someone's portfolio might look. On Deck is where ambitious people worldwide go to start companies, find their next roles, and invest in their careers. The Deep End invites the founders, operators, and investors from the OnDeck community and beyond to turn their experiences into the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. Joining me this week in the Deep End is Alexander Harmson, founder and CEO of Global Predictions. Global Predictions has created a wealth optimization platform to help make its users better investors. Alex leaned on his experience in both OnDeck Founders and OnDeck Investing to grow the early product and has now grown a sophisticated deep tech company that has built a digital twin of the economy to make unbiased forecasts into the future using hyperconnected simulations, economic modeling, diverse data streams, and machine learning. We chat about how this platform could add an extra layer of analysis to investment decisions, in addition to understanding what millennials really want and how to challenge assumptions you'll be making with some subconscious biases. Alex also reflects on recent financial crises, whether it's the dot-com bubble bursting, the subprime mortgage crash, or the fallout from COVID. Alex emphasizes the learning opportunities that these moments provide. All right, hope you enjoy the episode. Let's dive in. Alex Harmson, welcome to The Deep End. Good to be here, Marshall. You have one of the most ambitious statements of purpose on your website that I've really seen for a company that we've interviewed. Let us bring order and understanding to a seemingly chaotic global economy. I want to spend a little bit of time on that statement. Specifically, let's start with the seemingly chaotic bit. Because underneath this statement, which is on your main page. It's, there's the 2008 financial crisis, 2015, the Greece, Greece Eurozone crisis, and then 2019, the coronavirus pandemic. So is the seemingly right. suggesting something? What did you mean by that? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That choice of words was very careful. Uh, I mean, at Global Predictions, ultimately, we're trying to help investors make better decisions about their portfolio, allocations, diversification, risk management, uh, by giving them you know, the right big picture understanding of what's happening in the economy, and then directly linking that to people's portfolios. And so 
to be able to do that properly, you know, you basically need to know how the machine works. You know, you need to understand how the systems and the economy works. You know, if you look at the news, if you read journals, articles, if you talk to anybody, uh, I think it almost seems like everyone has a piece of the puzzle. You know, they're linking two or three different macro concepts together. They have some detailed information about some company. They understand, you know, the coronavirus is causing X and public health trends are shifting in this direction or they're investing because of a technology. But you really need to be able to put all those different pieces together at the same time to make an informed decision. Or at least that's our perspective. You know, it's this nonlinear, you know, hyperdimensional optimization problem that I think you really need systems like this to solve. And I think that it's easy to think about the world as a chaotic system, but in reality, you know, there's logic to it at a micro level. We ultimately people make, you know, buy and sell decisions, they trade, they make investments in a relatively logical way. And so, you know, if you organize that information, if you take on the different data streams, if you, you know, use algorithms and systems thinking to be able to put them together, Yes, it's absolutely a complex system. And so you'll never be able to model everything. But, you know, with the approach that we've taken, you know, relatively top down approach for how the economy works, you model it out in knowledge graphs and anomaly detection and world monitoring and different data series. And you know, I'm sure we'll get into all those different pieces. But, uh, you know, there is actually a way to be able to put it all together into a single system that helps you make better decisions. And it's fuzzy, you know, we, we don't ever directly say, you know, X is going to happen or we forecast this position. Uh, there's risk and error bars associated with everything that we do. But the, at the end of the day, you know, that's where the information lies. You know, how tight are the error bars? How broad is this? How certain are we about different pieces of information? And, uh, you know, that's really what we're trying to do and bring together. And then, you know, ultimately what we found is that, you know, there's a sea of information and insights and data underneath the surface. Uh, but then people ultimately want to just interact with the tip of the iceberg instead of recommendations and, you know, what we call a portfolio score to be able to, you know, help people sort of pinpoint a North Star for them to, you know, guide their portfolio and make better investment decisions. So something I'm very curious about, you and I are of similar age. So the 08 crisis, the Eurozone in 15, then COVID, obviously, these are economic, financial, public policy, disasters, crises, et cetera, that really shaped our lived experiences and shaped the way that we look at the world. I'm just curious, before you started this company, how did you think about and conceive of these big events. You could insert the right. 2000.com bubble into this. There's all sorts of experiences, 1990s on, that would shape. So I'm just curious how, how you are personally thinking about those things and then how that plays into your motivation for getting into this space. Yeah, interesting to look at the motivation from that lens about how I saw these different financial crises. I think, I, I, I think about myself in very different you know, I was obviously, you know, 
thinking about the economy and investing in a very different way, you know, when I was young and in school going through the dot-com crisis as, you know, sort of starting to think about jobs in the, you know, the financial crisis, thinking about the recent COVID, you know, bubble, uh, COVID crisis. The answer is probably that it was frustrating that everybody around me attributed these crises to like one or two different factors when it was very clear that it was this much more complex set of interconnected events that led to that. And I think I've always felt that sort of frustration where it, you know, I'm not necessarily saying people are lying when they say, you know, the financial crisis is caused by X, you know, on a single factor. But I think it's an oversimplification that you need to make if you are trying to sell news or, you know, if you're trying to be a thought leader, uh, if you are trying to, like, so much narrative telling and explanation that's needed to be able to convey these thoughts. And I think that people oversimplify intentionally or unintentionally about these much larger uh, complex systems. And so I think it's, there's a frustration there, but I think also the problem is that we've only really lived through a few of these crises. You know, it's, we need to be looking at the, the 1929 stock market crash. We need to be looking at oil crises in the eighties. We need to be looking at, you know, what happened to inflation, you know, 40 years ago. We need to be looking at, you know, post-war booms. You know, there's so much we can learn from all these different examples, but, you know, none of us remember that. You know, even some of the oldest hedge fund managers, you know, they have skewed opinions about what their life was like or what investing was like in those historical moments. And so I think, I mean, this is part of the thesis for global predictions. You sort of need a system to be able to model out those different risks to build a good portfolio management tool for someone. And, you know, some of the top hedge funds in the world have done that, right? There's funds like Bridgewater that do this really well. They're known for this kind of macro modeling. And, you know, Ray Dalio talks about, you know, the machine that is the economy. Uh, but no one has access to that, you know, except for a couple thousand Bridgewater employees and, you know, investors and flagship funds. Uh, and so, you know, I think about global predictions as almost democratizing access to these hedge fund caliber models and then building the right sort of tools and frameworks around that to help, you know, everyday investors, you know, be able to understand what's happening in the world as well and be able to risk appropriately, be able to hedge, be able to, you know, map out and think about risk, expected returns and downside protection, you know, as not opposites, you know, not as two sides of a coin and you have to choose, but as an optimization problem where you can get the best of both worlds, uh, you know, that that's what goes into this portfolio score that I talked about before. That's where the recommendations lead you. Uh, and honestly, you know, maybe selfishly, you know, at the end of the day, I want this for myself. You know, I don't have time as someone who's running a business and innovating and, you know, doing everything else I do. I mean, I have a one-year-old son, you know, being a dad. I don't have time to look at financial markets all day. I don't have time to read macroeconomic news. I, I want to feel secure in my portfolio management, you know, to make sure that 
my, you know, the real estate that I hold, the cash that I have, the public market investments, the private market stock, you know, that that's all sort of being taken care of. And, you know, that I'm optimizing all of that at the same time. I will just say quickly, what do you do from a news consumption perspective? Because I think what you just said from the having a one-year-old to the being busy, right. considering the audience of this show, I think everyone increasingly feels, especially with Twitter, that they're just constantly not keeping up with everything. How do you personally handle that dilemma? And then we'll get to the actual company part, but I'm curious how you mm-hmm. think about that in this space. I think there's a there's a couple different news sources that I cycle between, but I honestly think about it more like entertainment than rather rather than staying involved or rather than staying informed. You know, I actually think that this is a problem, like a huge problem today in 2022, where you almost need some sort of unbiased synthesis of these different news sources. And so I don't know, personally, I fluctuate between Twitter, some sort of top news podcasts, BBC, Reuters, and Reddit. You know, like that gives me some perspective of sort of big global news, local, what people in the tech community are bubbling up. TechCrunch makes into that list sometimes. Uh, but it, it feels inefficient. And I feel like every single time I'm looking at any of those news sources, I feel like I add an asterisk or or error bars to it in my mind to say, I can't fully trust that. There's something underneath here that's guiding that. And so I need to keep it all in my mind with some error bars at the same time to be able to synthesize the right picture of what's happening. Because I know, I don't know, even if I read the Wall Street Journal or even if I read The Economist and pick up an article once in a while, it like they go deep into something and they're leaving out all of the other parts that aren't relevant relevant to the narrative or they can't explain uh, that doesn't match their story that they're trying to tell. So to the topic then, and then we'll get into the specifics here. I'm curious when you describe the economy as almost a machine when you talk about logic, I think that's probably the statement that you're going to utter on this episode that would, predict, that would cause the most skepticism just from an interested observer. You could say, right. look, in all three of the different crises we referred to, there are all sorts of illogical decisions that were made, all mm-hmm. sorts of bits that don't fit together. So can you just articulate why you think that conception, the metaphor is a right. useful one considering the business you're in. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I don't think there are many illogical decisions that get made, it, even in crises like that. I think if you don't, if you don't think about it like machine, then it feels like an illogical set of reactions to the system. But at the end of the day, you know, people are buying and selling stocks because of you know, available capital because of liquidity in the system, because of fears and sentiment, you know, and if you model out liquidity and growth and fears and sentiment, if you model out different political situations, you start getting into the behavior that's driving that, you know, okay, what's driving 
liquidity or growth in a system. You know, you start looking at, I don't know, monetary supply and you start looking at quantitative easing and how governments are reacting. And then there's, you know, there's always, you know, you always have to consider what is the government actually doing and what people think the government's going to do. Or what is the price of something? What is the underlying value? You know, there's sentiment and speculation that's driving, uh, you know, what's happening in various stocks. And same thing with asset prices in real estate. You know, there are expectations about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, everything goes in, you know, there's booms and busts and cycles for a reason because, and those are relatively predictable as well. Uh, but there's cycles upon cycles upon cycles that are stacked. You know, there's sort of day, day long trading cycles or flows, you know, within markets. But then there's also sort of long term debt cycles worth looking at. And so I think if you look at it with that lens, like everything is a cause and effect, it's just one long cause effect chain that ends up, uh, you know, ends up being something you actually can model. I think one of the, one of the most surprising things to me that we've found and that sort of come out in this kind of research that we're doing is that, you know, most stocks in, I don't know, on the NASDAQ, on the New York Stock Exchange, you know, most of these public equities get driven significantly by inflation and GDP expectations. And so like you can predict a lot about what any stock is going to do, even if you don't know anything fundamentally about the company, based on how GDP and inflation are doing compared to GDP and inflation forecasts or you know general sentiment projections. Because ultimately, these companies are driven by purchasing behavior. They're driven by investment. They're driven by you know exports and imports. You know the underlying components of GDP. Inflation is driven by very similar you know mechanical, you know machine like cause and effect reaction chains. And so, if you think about it like that, it feels like everything that's happening in these economic systems. You know, whether it's in the real economy or in financial markets, uh, gets driven by these cause and effect relationships. Something I'd love to hear more about because it makes sense once you get the context in your company, but you, you frame global predictions as a as, as a deep tech company. We've covered the the deep tech space a bit, so I'd love for you just to. Mm. Explain what deep tech is from your perspective, why you were drawn to it as a founder right. who's been in multiple different companies, and how the deep tech ideas you're talking about play out in global predictions itself. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, the, there's probably two big influences here for global predictions. Uh, the company I ran before, Iris Automation, uh, and then uh, Very Sim Life, uh, my wife's company. And uh, you know, I've been advisor with them for the last five, six years and seen how they're building uh, these deep tech systems. Ultimately, I think they're very similar to each other, these companies. You know, Iris Automation is a autonomous vehicle company building autonomous vehicle software, basically computer vision systems for flying autonomous vehicles. You know, drones, air taxis, this sort of thing to be able to do you know, real world perception, navigation, collision avoidance, and 
Ultimately, there are massive amounts of unstructured data that we have to analyze and decipher process in real time. We built massive simulated environments about how the world works. We spent something like a year just on clouds. You have to understand the underlying structure and dynamics of how clouds form and how they look and how they're you know, visible in the camera because we're getting lots of false positives with our computer vision on clouds. And we spent a long time modeling that out you know, in Unreal Engine and the simulation system that we built. Um, lots of real world test data, lots of training in the, you know, in the simulation. And, you know, ultimately that's, you know, sort of undisputably deep tech, you know, where we're dealing with these complex, you know, hybrid AI systems, where we're talking about sort of the mechanistic underlying uh, computer vision algorithms, you know, that are all uh, probability based together with these deep learning classification models, and then, you know, very similar life, very similar in the sense that it's a hybrid AI, you know, digital twin of a very complex system, in this case, the human body, you know, and so they use basically, you know, mechanistic underlying models about blood flows and metabolizing enzymes within the human body, within animal bodies to recreate uh, drug development and, uh, uh, you know, they use that model to be able to do drug development. They work with some of the biggest pharma companies in the world. And so, you know, in both cases or all three cases, you know, including global predictions, it's trying to solve a relatively simple problem, you know, not colliding with other manned aircraft, you know, figuring out is this drug going to work in a human body or not? Is this portfolio truly optimized? You know, what are the risks involved in downturn scenarios? What's the potential upside that it can be balancing with the risk I'm taking? Uh, but you really need behind the scenes this deep tech hybrid AI system that's looking at a very unstructured, complex space and distilling that down to a set of assumptions using the data infrastructure, a knowledge graph to be able to create the right linkages to be able to ultimately come up with you know the right portfolio management tool to to do that and use that for you know individual users, individual clients of the system. I'm glad you brought up individual users and individual clients, because as you said earlier, a large part of what you're doing is democratizing tools that have existed for incumbent, very, very powerful incumbents. So let's ask this question two ways. Firstly, you referenced Bridgewater, but can you describe for a second or as long as you need the systems or the approaches these top firms are taking? And then- how you specifically through goal predictions are democratizing that. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, my my co-founder, Reed, uh, he worked at Bridgewater for a long time and so understands that very well. Uh, he was a, a portfolio manager at a hedge fund for the last five years before he joined, uh, joined me on this journey at Global Predictions. And so I feel like I've learned a tremendous amount from him. Like I feel like there were so many basic mistakes that I was making as an individual investor, you know, not either not having access to the same kind of tools or not having access to the same insights or putting those insights together in the right way to be able to make portfolio decisions. And so one of the surprising things that most, I think, top tier hedge funds do, and you know, Bridgewater, I put in this bucket, maybe companies like you know, hedge funds like Soros, you know, these macro companies macro hedge funds, they will 
spend a lot of time looking at what is important and what's not important. And they spend a lot of time figuring out, you know, is this really a driver or is it just happens to be correlated? You know, what are the real influences? What are these, these cause effect reaction chains that I mentioned before? And so I actually think one of the most important things that we've done to try to, you know, replicate, you know, similar concepts as these top tier hedge funds is build this knowledge graph. And when I talk about the, you know, the global predictions knowledge graph, I'm talking about a, an interconnected web of weighted directional relationships that connect different concepts within the global economy. You know, we have different public, uh, public health drivers in there. We have commodities. We are, we are mapping out currencies. We're mapping out, you know, things like GDP in Zambia, but also, you know, the South African RAND, as well as trade relationships from Bangladesh, as well as the, you know, the, the different company fundamentals of Apple. You know, all of those things go into this massive knowledge graph with millions of interconnected relationships. And then, you know, through a set of sort of experts, decision making, we assign weights to it. But then we also use a set of different machine learning algorithms to figure out, you know, what is the optimum weighting between all these different nodes in this knowledge graph to come up with the right weights for these edges uh, and directions for the edges, because some things are... Uh, you know, some things are bi-directional, they influence each other. Some, a lot of things are very unidirectional. And so I think it's that knowledge graph. And at most hedge funds that we've encountered or talked to or understand, you know, they don't necessarily put it into that structure. But I don't know, being in 2022 where graphs are all the rage, you know, it makes a lot of sense for companies like Facebook and Google to map out these complex social interactions with graphs like this made a lot of sense to us to build this as an economic graph as well to capture these underlying relationships. And then once you have those relationships, then you can start assessing portfolios in a much more detailed way, a much more comprehensive way. You know, if I go to, I don't know, any robo-advisor, if I open up a Fidelity or Schwab account, I get a an automatic portfolio analyzer there as well. You know, I get famously a pie chart about, you know, this is, my sector exposure to you know utilities and to tech, and this is my sector exposure to healthcare, uh, and that's important to look at. You know, we're we are breaking down the world in that way as well, but we are also doing it seventeen other ways to be able to slice based on countries, to be able to slice based on individual holdings, to look through the individual ETFs of funds that people are holding, and we are looking at the underlying drivers and looking you know how correlated are these underlying drivers. You know, one of the recommendations that we give quite often to people is that, you know, your portfolio is very inflation driven. You know, so big changes in inflation, you know, because of these different things that you hold in your portfolio actually are really problematic if there's big changes in expected inflation. And so, you know, over the last year, that's obviously very topical. but we're also looking at sort of underlying drivers around currency prices, or you know, we have a lot of Canadian investors and the Canadian economy is very commodity heavy. You know, a lot of oil and mining exposure in Canada. And so a lot of the stock market in general, if you take sort of broad Canadian indexes, you're very driven by commodities. And so you wanna be able to hedge against that. You wanna be able to diversify 
you know, in these underlying drivers, not just in these surface level, you know, pie charts and uh, cuts about how someone's portfolio might look. Who is your ideal customer for everything you're describing? Uh, probably people like you and me, you know, where investing isn't, you know, something I do professionally. This isn't my full-time job. You know, I have a certain amount of money in public equities and real estate and cash. And, uh, you know, I'm doing this on the side. You know, I want to have a little bit more control than, you know, just putting my money into a robo-advisor or sort of letting it go at the, you know, these sort of low but stable returns from robo-advisors. But I also don't want to pay the fees to give this money to a wealth manager because, you know, I feel like I have more control in that and the one or 2% isn't worth it. And I think there's lots and lots and lots of people who are sort of this, uh, we describe it as a you know, mass affluent millennial, uh, you know, our ideal customer profile. But it's really people who over the last five to 10 years have gotten enough autonomy, who feel empowered to do this themselves, have gotten access to, you know, very cheap or no cost investing options, you know, brokerages like Schwab, Fidelity, Robinhood, you know, have made that much more accessible than ever before. I think there's a lot of data out there. But, you know, it's really people who are wanting to have another layer of analysis on top of that data to help them with the decision-making process. That's our guide. And I think there's, honestly, I think there's millions of people like that. You know, I've talked to so many people that, you know, are looking for tools like this that give them just a little bit of a, you know, really they're trying to help, we're trying to help them control fear and greed, right? We're trying to help them feel secure, feel confident about the investing decisions that they're making uh, at whatever level, you know, they want to dig into the models. They could stay at the very highest level and just take the recommendations and take sort of the portfolio score and use that at their light. Or they could dig into the underlying models and assumptions, the underlying data, and the whole system is set up to be very transparent, you know, for this reason, because, you know, that's how we're building trust with people. We're not claiming to be this you know, oracle, future you know, teller, knowing what's going to happen in the world. But you know, we feel like we can put all those different pieces together to make the right sort of forecast or at least you know, attribute the right risks and weight to it as part of this, you know, this nonlinear optimization problem that I talk about. Could you actually talk more about the trust question? Because... I'm glad you highlighted it because this seems to be, if we're speaking to underlying beliefs or drivers for these mass affluent millennial types, trust issues, institutions, especially financial ones, is going to be a huge one. Just talk about trust because I feel like most founders of companies are going to have to answer some version of this question no matter what their vertical is. Right. And this came up a lot before as well with Iris Automation. This comes up all the time with Ferris and Life. It comes up, you know, with, with deep tech in general, I mean, there's a lot of skeptics. It's kind of crazy what I'm proposing to map out the economy, to connect all these different pieces. I mean, you know, maybe if we had $10 billion in 10 years to solve it all, like we could get a team of you know researchers and put it all together. Uh, but I think it's a lot easier than that. You know, a lot of the trust that we're establishing with people is uh, through the transparency. You know, it's not claiming to be perfect. You know, we publish how accurate we are 
in the different models and the evaluations that we run. We are quite transparent with people about you know, how the system works, what's under the surface. I think a lot of the financial world is trying to obscure the process. You know, they're trying to make it seem like we're the experts. You got to trust us. It's very difficult, all the stuff that's happening. Give us your money. We'll manage it for you. And, uh, you know, I would love to reverse that process. I hate it when someone tells me that. You know, I hate it when someone says, oh, just trust me. You know, we've been doing this for a long time. Don't worry about it. I'm naturally curious. I feel, you know, I feel empowered. I feel like I should be able to, you know, open up the hood and check, check out what's happening. And I think that's the general mentality we've taken when building this system and giving people, you know, access to the platform. I think, uh, you know, for some people, it takes time to build that trust. And so we offer sort of a demo mode and, you know, we are not, we are not making trades on behalf of people either, right? Like, I think that's a very important distinction. You know, we're not saying, you know, give us your money, drop it into our account. We'll manage it for you. And six months later, you can see how we did. Or 10 years later, we'll see how you did. We're saying, look, connect your portfolio. You can follow along, you know, with the recommendations that we're giving you. We'll tell you what's working, what's not working. Uh, we're going to give you, you know, different recommendations, portfolio score, let you run different simulations and look through different scenarios in the hope that you become a more educated investor and make better decisions and, you know, really understand your risk. You know, I would say it's actually, you know, a successful use of our system. If you go in, connect your portfolios, you know, connect the investment accounts, connect, you know, cash, real estate. And you come away from that feeling more confident than before without any changes. We say, okay, I feel like I'm making the right decisions. I feel like I've more trust in my own process. I know why I'm balancing things out properly. Uh, if that's the output, you know, that feels like a, a successful customer conversion. That feels like a, you know, a, a user using the system as intended. And so I think because we're not you know, the ask isn't that high from us at the beginning, right? We're not, we're not asking you to trust us with your money. We're, we're saying, here's what we think. Here's why we think that. Here's why you should think the same thing. And here's, you know, suggest the changes. But at the end of the day, you pull the trigger. And I think putting that switch in users' hands is a big deal. I, I think it's a really big deal for millennials and especially the next generation that wants to, you know, control their own destiny. Couple different places I want to take this, but let's actually. Uh, this is a this is a genuine. I do a lot of these. This is a genuine compliment I'm giving you. I really like the point you made at the start, and it's one of the more profound points I've heard on this podcast around the dangers of just narratives and why we're driven to just write a narrative of. 2008 happened because we repealed Glass-Steagall, and 2015 right. happened because the EU was outmoded in this very specific way, and the coronavirus thing happened because of insert Trump or insert um, China, whatever, whatever, whatever. Exactly. Not to say in all three of those cases there isn't a degree of truth there, just that mm -hmm. if you're writing a movie for HBO or you're writing a book or you're selling a, you know, you're writing a Substack, part of selling those things requires that. But given what you just said about what millennials want, 
what what do millennials want? If, if, if you're, you know what I mean? If you're, if you're starting by making the very valid point that we should avoid taking convenient narratives, how, how do you think about just this idea of you've got a great customer psychographic, right? Like mass affluent millennials. This is actually a better psychographic than the generic millennials just like, or this is a, this is much smarter than the GameStop narrative because the GameStop narrative is not particularly helpful. So you've got a much more accurate frame. How do you think about this dynamic though? Yeah. I mean, I, you're asking me to like characterize a whole like segment of the population, right? So I don't necessarily want to speak for all millennials, but I do think that you know, when we're talking about mass affluent or high net worth individual millennials, we're really talking about, you know, people who have somewhere between $200,000 and $5 million. Uh, in total assets. And that could be private equity stock options from a company, that could be uh, inheritance, that could be real estate that have accumulated. But it's very often, uh, you know, people who are professionals, who are doctors and lawyers and dentists, it's people who are product managers and engineers who have slowly built this up over time. And very often, you know, what we see is that they have a specific nest egg that they're growing, you know, they're forming, you know, they're starting families. They are thinking about, you know, what is settling down even mean? They're thinking sort of retirement is in the distance, but I start got to start planning for that. And uh, I think they're, they're willing to take risks and they want, you know, high expected returns. And there's, there's always a friend or two that's, you know, involved in crypto or buying NFTs and, you, know, you always feel like you're missing out on something, but then there's also sort of a general fear of, you know, real estate's getting very expensive and, you know, what about my job? And is there like, are we in a tech bubble? You know, how do I think about that? You know, the stock options that I have with a company or how do I think about, uh, you know, how do I hedge sort of this very heavy, you know, sort of, NASDAQ or S&P 500, like tech heavy market that I'm invested in right now. Uh, and so I think there's a fear as well about like, I just don't know what's coming. It's hard to know if this looks more like the like 1920s, you know, stock market bubble, or if it looks more like the tech bubble of, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001. So there's a fear, like this is what I'm talking about in terms of sort of the, there's an ever-present fear and greed that needs to be balanced. And I think there's also a lot of people in that same demographic that say, you know, I don't, like I've heard so many different opinions, like I, what am I supposed to do, right? Like, how am I supposed to interact with a system like this? There's so much information. I don't have time to process it all. And so they either feel overwhelmed or check out completely. And I think that's the kind of, and it's like, it's to be clear, it's like we're solving that with portfolio management, but I think the same problems exist with environmental issues. I think the same problems exist with like understanding basic budgeting. I think the problems exist with career prospects. I think the problems exist with dating. You know, there's so much choice and there's so many different things that you could do. And, the, you know, with social media, it feels like there's always someone who's one-upping you. Uh, 
that like it's an ever-present battle between fear and greed. And having some third-party unbiased source that, you know, isn't trying to make a simple, like isn't trying to put a simple narrative on this and is like actually very data-driven. Uh, I mean, I like to think as a big comfort for, you know, people like myself. Yeah. And as we're nearing the end here, something I'm curious about is reading through your website, which has great copy, good content. And you, you spoke about this a bit earlier when you're referring to your frustration when it came to this space, you and the company very explicitly say folks were skeptical that someone could build what you are building and relative to how early you are people had not really tried to do what you're doing so i'd love for you just to speak to to speak to why they made that evaluation and what exactly you are doing that's different than what the conventional wisdom within the field suggested was possible right and like just to be clear we're not really reinventing the wheel we're not really creating something incredibly novel here. Like I pointed out, there's hedge funds that have been doing this for years and years and years. Right? Some of these top tier hedge funds have focused on macro trends and they're building economic models of the economy and modeling this out like a machine. You know, Bridgewater is sort of the classic famous example. I mean, they have something like $150 billion under management at the moment. And so they're doing something right. Uh, the, I think the, it's more of a, and I'm not saying that the tech isn't very difficult and, you know, it takes that, you know, it takes a long time to build it up. But I think with, you know, available computing power in the cloud, with access to more data than ever before, sort of the last 10 to 15 years of like this quant revolution has led to a significant amount of relatively commoditized economic and financial data. I think like our understanding of forecasting, statistical forecasting in particular, has really taken off over the last 10 years. I think there's more trust in models than ever before uh, as this starts becoming more and more mainstream in different domains. You know, it feels like a culmination in all of these different pieces that are making it easier to build this kind of system and put it together. And at the same time, you know, the real novel thing that we're bringing to market is more a business model innovation than a tech innovation. You know, it's a deep tech technology that we're taking from the hedge fund world into the mainstream to help millions of investors and, you know, making that accessible in a very easy to use interface with recommendations, with, you know, direct. You know, one of the things that I, I was talking about with someone yesterday in a call, they said, you know, it kind of feels like, you know, there's a dozen analysts that are just looking at my one portfolio. Yeah, I, I honestly think we'll use that as a, as a, you know, as a slogan going forward. Like it feels so obvious that, you know, what you, what people really want is that level of attention and detail on, you know, their specific situation. Cause everyone is unique and everyone is, you know, every situation is quite complex. I think that's the novel thing. You know, I think there's this culmination in different trends that are coming together. There is a, uh, this business model innovation that I think makes sense. But I also think that there's a reluctance in general. Like I spoke with hundreds of people from the New York Fed to the IMF to some of the top hedge funds to individual wealth managers, lots of individual investors, central banks, 
oil and gas companies, like, why haven't you built this model yourself? And I think the, the immediate response from mostly everybody else was, it's too complex. It's too difficult. I don't even know where to start. I spoke with one, one person in particular, this guy in New York, and he had built this incredible model of the real estate market in New York. Like he had mapped out every single block. He had transaction data of real estate going back like a hundred years. And like in 2020, his model fell completely flat because he wasn't modeling inflation. He had certain expectations around foot traffic. There was nothing around COVID or public health. And so you know, if you think about it, a relatively simple, very widespread top-down model of the world is oftentimes better than these very specific bottom-up models in terms of being able to manage risk appropriately, especially if you have a diversified portfolio, especially if you are not taking a very concentrated bet on you know, one very specific stock, which I mean, very few people are. Or at least, you know, that's not our, our demographic, right? Where we're talking about the mass affluent millennial that isn't investing full time. They ultimately want exposure to markets and they want to make sure that they limit their downside and they want sort of that general macro coverage and they want to make sure that, you know, they're not on the wrong side of uh, different trends in the economy. And I think that's, you know, I know this is a little bit of a complicated way of answering your question, but I think it's those different trends that come together that ultimately result in a, I think, a relatively simple tool backed by this like incredible, like deep tech model that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people still think is impossible to build. So for a second to last question, just to get I really like that example we just gave of how the New York super specific real estate thing was particularly useful. You pointed out the person didn't model for COVID, but let's say it's December 2019, January 2020. What, without having to get too granular or get as granular as you want, what to just give an image in the audience's head, what would modeling for COVID have looked like back then? Right. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a number of different things that need to be taken into account, right? And part of it, you can look at specifically COVID cases and COVID deaths, right? But I think you need to think through what is the chain of events here, right? Like the COVID cases and COVID death drive a certain amount of sentiment and fear about economic collapse. And that's actually very important. It drives certain like tourism, for example. And so it starts impacting countries in very specific ways. Things like travel bans and political action, you know, take shape. Uh, you can model out what government responses would be to different crises. You know, so you can model out, you know, if there is a fear-driven, you know, market correction, then you can anticipate that, you know, you know, in the current set of monetary policies that the government is using, like ever since the 2008 financial crisis, you know, it's very heavy on quantitative easing. You can look at where interest rates are and look at the different levers that the government has at its disposal. And so you know, really one of the only things the government can do, you know, they can't drop interest rates even more so they can print money and increase the monetary supply and, you know, start, you know, buying in the economy. You can look at historical crises and downturns to look to see, you know, what happens if, uh, you know, you have this idea of like a consumer-led recession. 
versus like, you know, something like sentiment led recession. And so, you know, the fact that you don't have the same credit crises, the fact that people still have money, but they're worried about potential drops in unemployment or travel or slowdown in GDP, like all of these things connect and all of them you can look at individually that like, I'm not specifically tying them all to COVID, but they are all like, I feel like it's relatively easy to draw a line between that and COVID cases, you know, to draw a line between that and, you know, what actually happens to individual equities, what happens to real estate prices. And so I think it's about being able to hold all of those things in your head or in the system at the same time. And you find out that some of them matter a lot and some of them don't matter at all. Right. And so you could have a, crystal ball and know exactly what's going to happen with COVID cases, or you can map out and run millions of different simulations about how all those different things might play out. And then you can see in, you know, 900,000 of the million cases, you know, the underlying value of stocks doesn't change. And so like, realistically, there's like, even if there's a short term recession, like they'll bounce back relatively quickly and we'll get this sort of the K-shaved recovery that we had, you know, in 2020. And so there's, I think there's things like that that are worth looking, you know, it's worth thinking about a large universe of potential possibilities and then looking to see how much is similar between all these different outcomes and that, how have that drive decisions rather than trying to build the best possible COVID model to figure out you know, how many cases are there going to be in March 2020 and then make stock predictions based on that? And don't get me wrong, there's lots of people that are doing that. It just feels like a relatively naive and like concentrated approach because you really need to take into account all of these other macro conditions. Yeah. So just for the last question, because this is the On Deck podcast, obviously, and you've actually got a great um, blog post on our website um, around your participation in ODF8, Founder Fellowship, the Investor Fellowship. I'd love for you just to close a bit on your on-deck experience, how it was useful, all, all those basic different parts here, because I, I really mean this, like you're, you're the type of founder that we want to have here in the sense that you're looking at interesting spaces, you have previous experience and you're tying that experience to your current company. So how our programs are useful for someone like you, I think would be instructive to listeners who are considering applying, joining ODX, et cetera, et cetera. I love the experience. I did uh, the Ondek, the Founders Fellowship. I also did Ondek uh, Investing when that was a thing last year. And part of it is meeting lots of different people. Uh, we got a significant amount of early users of our platform. We got hundreds of other Ondek fellows who became users of the global prediction system. And there was just an, an openness and the amount of feedback that we got and on everything. Yeah, everything from brand and color of our public website to the messaging to people saying like, I don't understand X or they broke a lot of stuff in the product and you know gave us feedback about like, here was the way to recreate that. Even now, you know, we're funded and we're growing a team. You know, I'm posting still, I mean, every couple of weeks in the, the on deck, like Slack community asking for, could be anything. Honestly, I think the last post I made, you know, we're looking for a, you know, my wife and I are looking for a nanny share. You know, we have an incredible nanny. We're looking for someone else to play with Alan and, to, you know, share the costs. 
uh, you know, in the East Bay of Oakland. And so there's a specific forum there to post that. You know, the post before that I made, I was looking for uh, a contract, like a marketing and growth contractor to help us scale up and reach, you know, different investing communities. Uh, and so it's been useful in lots of different ways. We have a, we had a mastermind group in the, the investing, like the on deck investing community. And, uh, I mean, that ended, that was like, I think it ended in June of 2021. That mastermind group still meets regularly every two weeks now, you know, long past the program. And, uh, partly it's social and partly it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to share ideas and keep talking about things in the crypto space and trying to understand how people invest and sharing different ideas and tips. And so, uh, I definitely recommend on deck to, uh, to anyone. And, uh, I, th- I think being a part of a community like that is going to be useful and will pay dividends, you know, over the next 20 years, you know, as long as I stay in entrepreneurship, as long as the community keeps growing. You know, it's funny. Uh, I don't share questions with guests beforehand. So I didn't tell you I was going to ask you that question. And that was a great answer. I'm just thinking as we're talking about risk, there's a world where I say, how was the on deck experience? You're like, it was terrible. It ruined my company. Right. <laughs> so that, I'm glad that I'm going to, I'm going to keep taking this risk. Um, but yeah, that was a great answer. A great place to end. Um, Alex, um, where should you guys have a very easy website, globalpredictions.com. But you know, in terms of your previous things, like where should folks go to learn more about your company and what you're building? globalpredictions.com. Uh, absolutely. We, I mean, right now we are not charging for the system at all. It's completely free to sign up, link your account. And uh, we love feedback. We want to make it easier and more useful for people. We want to make sure the recommendations are, you know, they're correct and they end up leading to changes in your portfolio. Or like I said, you know, if you use it just to feel a little bit more confident about the investing decisions that you're making, Uh, We'd love to hear about that as well. Marshall, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, Alex, good best of luck with you. Yeah, good day. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.